on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for uh, this meal of the Lord's Supper that you have laid before us. A visible reminder, a sign and a seal of our union with Christ and our nourishment for our faith as we sojourn in this life. And we ask that this morning as we open up your word to discern the truths concerning the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we ask for wisdom that you would apply these things to our hearts. For we pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Now, the little bit with Eutychus is interesting, but I really want to focus on the first part of this verse. You notice what it says, on the first day of the week. And of course, they gathered on the first day of the week to commemorate what? The resurrection. He is risen. Yeah, we have a, f- a couple few, right? He is risen, and we gather every Lord's Day on this, the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, just as they did in the early church. And it says, when we were gathered together to break bread. Well, that's interesting. They were gathered together for the express purpose of breaking bread. What does that mean? Is that just eating a meal together? Well, it certainly could be that. But what we're to take from this is much more than just eating a meal together, but celebrating the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So this morning, we are going to consider the question, how often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Now first, I want to just outline for you three common ways of approaching the frequency with which we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to set these before your consideration, and then I want to show you very briefly why they are not a good biblical or theological answer to that question. And then I want to spend the rest of the sermon opening up for you what the Scriptures teach about the Lord's Supper. So first, what has commonly been done is once a year. Celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper once a year. Well, why would, why would they come to this conclusion that we should just celebrate it once a year? Well, you think, okay, our Lord died only once, and it was in celebrate that he instituted the Lord's Supper was in celebration of the Passover, which was also to be celebrated once a year. And so the thinking goes, well, Maybe we should only on Easter celebrate the Lord's Supper in conjunction with his resurrection and following his own institution of that meal. Now, let me just say there are 
that, that, that sounds commendable, right? That it has some historical precedent in the Passover, celebrated only once a year. But you see, the Lord's Supper is not just one-for-one one equivalent for the Passover Supper. There are differences. And of course, when we come to 1 Corinthians 11, the argument that Paul is making that some are sick and some are even dying because they're eating the Lord's Supper without considering each other. Some are getting drunk. Some don't even have elements to partake together. Paul's saying what the problem in Corinth is there's no unity. They're not together as one body. They're not eating one loaf. They're not drinking from one cup. There's no unity within the body of Christ. And that's what's leading to their being sick and even dying. Well, would that be the case if they only celebrated this meal once a year? Would it be realistic for Paul to even mention it? If, if only once a year the meal was just a little bit disarrayed? Well, it only happens once a year. I mean, how can that really characterize the unity of the body of Christ? But more likely, this meal is, um, they broke bread weekly together. Actually, maybe even as often as they came together, which in the early church was sometimes daily. And so it seems untenable that it would be just once a year. The second main uh, interpretation is that we should only celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in conjunction with a sermon that outlines the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this also seems to have a lot of merit to it, right? If we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper, which is a commemoration, uh, a remembrance of the death of Christ, shouldn't we have in our sermon something of the death and resurrection of Christ? Well, of course we should. All of our sermons should be saturated in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, right? They should be Christ-centered. And this would sort of say that some of our sermons are are on peripheral issues that are not really related to Christ. We wouldn't want to say that at all. All of our sermons are an exposition of the Word of God. And at the center of all of the Word of God is Christ. And so... All of our sermons should be preparing you to partake of the Lord's Supper, not just occasionally. The third one, which is the most common, we might call the psychological approach or the subjective approach. And this this says that we shouldn't celebrate the Lord's Supper too frequently because it will become rote or meaningless. We should only celebrate when it will be special. Now, This sounds good, and I admit, this is the one that had me most convinced for much of my Christian life. It seems on the surface to be the best option, right? We don't want to partake too much of the Lord's Supper because it could become meaningless and empty of its very purpose. The problem is, what if I'm feeling incredibly special that Lord's Day, and I'm ready to partake, but you're not? Maybe there's three of us, and we decide together that we're feeling special. Then could we have the sacrament? How many have to be feeling that special psychological uh, where you're ready? You're ready fully to enter into participation, and it's not meaningless. Well, you see, 
the problem with the subjectivist approach is it makes it all about you. It makes it all about me. It's not about what God has done for us in giving us this meal. It's about how I feel about it and how I'm able to receive it. And further, we don't, we don't apply that logic to anything else in life. Husbands, try this at home. Honey, I kissed you and I told you I loved you at the altar. I don't want to do it every day because it's going to become meaningless and rote. I know that you will accept it as genuine when I did it then, but I'm no longer going to do that every day. You see, that kind of subjective approach doesn't work. And of course, we don't apply that to prayer. Do you always feel enlivened when you open up the Word of God every morning and you are reading and offering up your prayers to the Lord? Well, of course, not always. But does that mean that you should not do it until you feel that special feeling? No, none of the spiritual disciplines are subjective. We do them because God has commanded us to do them. And we know that God works in and through them in ways that are mysterious to build and strengthen our faith. So these three approaches do not, are not consistent with what we find in Scripture. And to show that, I want to open up looking at three different ways. The nature of the Lord's Supper, the way the Lord's Supper was used in the New Testament, and then, how, and then finally answer the question, how often did the apostolic and the New Testament churches celebrate the Lord's Supper? So to begin this morning, let's look at the nature of the Lord's Supper. And again, I want to look at it under three headings. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Christ. The Lord's Supper is an enjoyment of the new covenant. And the Lord's Supper expresses the unity that we have as a church. So let's look this morning at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul says, And when he had given thanks, this is part of the institution, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what does it mean to do something in remembrance of Jesus? Not a shallow remembrance, not, not something that just stirs the memory, but reliving the past in order to presently live its reality. We talked about this last week in conjunction with the Feast of Booths. How did the people of Israel remember the Exodus? Well, they acted it out. Once a year, they set up camp, and they remembered what it was like to wander in the wilderness. And they had the Feast of Booths, where they set up these tabernacles, their little tent, tents, and they lived in them. And they reminded themselves of what it was like to be fleeing from Egypt towards the Promised Land, which they now lived in. That was a remembrance. It was a reenactment of the very thing that God had um, blessed them with in the Exodus. In the same way, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the death of Jesus Christ. In, the ex- in Exodus twelve fourteen, uh, in conjunction with the Passover, it says this, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. 
And then further down in in verse 8 of chapter 13, he says, You shall tell your sons on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. What's going on? They're gathering together as a family. They have sacrificed the lamb. They have painted the doorposts of their house with its blood. And they're sitting down to a meal together. And the youngest in the family asks the father, why are we doing this? Why are we eating this meal? And the father says, son, this is a memorial to remember. God brought us out of, out of Egypt in the Exodus He opened the Red Sea and we walked through it. He delivered us from all of our enemies by crushing Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that is your Lord. Just as an aside, you parents, take advantage of the opportunity that the Lord's Supper gives to teach your children that this is a remembrance from the littlest time when our children could hear and understand, we would take them aside and we'd say, ask them the questions. What, what does the wine show? And they were to repeat back to us, the wine shows the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. What does the bread show? The bread shows the broken body of our Lord, which is broken for our restoration, for our healing. They would recite and respond to those things. And parents, we have prepared a booklet in the back that will help you lead your child through by asking those questions. They, they are not at the age, at that point, where they're able to partake actively, to understand. But you can nurture that and teach that just as they did in the Passover, just as the fathers did to their children when they, they asked them, why do we do this? We do it in memory of Jesus and his sacrifice. Well, let me ask you this. How often is it appropriate to remember Jesus and his death? Once a year? Once a month? When you feel like it? Do you see how unsatisfying those answers are? When is it appropriate to remember the death of Jesus Christ? Whenever, always, whenever you come together as the body of Christ, remember his death and his resurrection. And secondly, the nature of the Lord's covenant is an enjoyment of the new covenant. Jesus said in his institution, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a new manner of worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well. And I want to just highlight a couple of verses from chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews that show the glory of the new covenant as exemplified in our worship through Christ. In, in Hebrews 8, 1 through 2, it says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And then skipping down to verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent 
than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And in verse 1 of chapter 9, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And then verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And then in verse 14 it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then in verse 1 of chapter 10, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And then in verse 16 it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, Jesus came to fulfill and set aside the old and usher in the new covenant, which is greater and grander And the Lord's Supper is a reminder that you are a part of that new covenant. That you have God's law written on your heart. That it's it's not the blood of bulls and goats that takes away sin, but it's by faith in the blood of, of Jesus Christ poured out for you on Calvary. Jesus came to fulfill and set aside the old. And so that's why we can see, we, we do see pictures of the Passover, but yet it's greater. It's greater than just the lamb slain because he offered up himself once for all. He never have to offer it himself again. And so the Lord's Supper expresses the beauty and the grandeur of the new covenant. But thirdly, the nature of the Lord's Supper expresses the unity of the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper, of course, requires unity. And this we already spoke about with 1 Corinthians 11. The whole point Paul is making about discerning the body is to recognize the unity that we have together. And this comes with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. If you have something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to him. See, the Lord's Supper expresses our unity. How can we, how can we participate in this and have animosity and hatred and bitterness, and gossip, and slander towards one another? How can we sit and take the Lord's Supper, which is meant to express our unity, and harbor such kind of attitude towards each other? That word participation is koinonia, fellowship. Some churches name their fellowship halls koinonia, right? It's to express that fellowship that we have together. Well, the Lord's Supper expresses that Fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ. But 
if we have fellowship with Jesus, then we have fellowship with all those who are united to him. We don't come just as isolated individuals, but we are made up of a body. And we partake of one bread because of the one Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the Lord's Supper expresses our unity. Now, let me ask you this. How often should we worship God in the unity of the church? Once a year? Once a month? When you feel like it? No, of course not. Whenever we gather together, we are expressing the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. And that is what this meal signifies, our unity together. That's why we don't just, as soon as you get it, you don't eat and drink. We wait for each other. We wait for everyone to sit down at the table. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had tables That we could just all sit around and we could be looking at the person across from us as we celebrate the unity that we have together in the body of Christ. Because Christ died shedding his blood and breaking his body so that you can be joined back together as one body. And how often should we do that? Every single time we gather together as the one body of Christ. Because, if we're honest, we don't always feel that unity, do we? Our attitudes don't always reflect it. The Lord's Supper is there to remind you that this objective truth you need to live into. This is what God has done. He has sent His Son who died to constitute you as one body in Christ. Now, act like it. Secondly, we need to ask, how was the Lord's Supper used in the New Testament? What was the purpose of it? How did they use it? How was it expressed in Scripture? And I want to show that this is in two ways. A daily manna and a place for discipline. Now, daily manna in John 6, Jesus has his bread of life discourse which, by the way, we're going to be beginning a series in June on the Gospel of John. So I would encourage you to start reading through it. Start soaking yourself in the Gospel of John because we're going to spend approximately the next two years opening up that book. But in John chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus is speaking and he's responding to this question. The Um, Pharisees said, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And then skipping down to verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is is my flesh. 
And then in verse 53, he says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Amen? You remember, Israel is in the wilderness and helpless. They are being led from one source of water to another source of water. Some estimate up to six million people. And God feeds them every day manna from heaven. All they have to do is go out and gather it. And it gives them life. And yet, every day, God sustains them. And what are they supposed to be learning? What are they supposed to be seeing in that? That they depend on God for their life. It's not the manna. It's not even the bread. As Moses says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But they are to learn that God is the one who sustains them in the wilderness. That they must depend on him for their daily manna. For their life. And Jesus says, they all died. But the person who comes and eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he will live forever. Whoa, Jesus, watch your language. Right? And people were upset at this statement and they walked away, even his own, some of his own disciples. How can this be? But then after he instituted the Lord's Supper and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come again. And then they knew. This is his flesh. This is his blood. This is our daily manna that sustains us in the wilderness. And we are in the wilderness. For you are harassed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you need to learn to depend on God just like Israel did. And you cannot live by your own bread. You need heavenly bread. That is the only thing that will sustain your faith as you sojourn in the wilderness. So how often do you need this manna? Once a year? Once a month? When you feel like it? No, you need it as often as you come together as that one body of Christ to sustain and nourish your faith as you sojourn in this life. Some of us, we're loath to miss one meal in the day. right? We make sure and get all three and sometimes it's 11 Z's and second breakfast, right? I'm not missing any of those. But 
But we're so quick to say, I don't need this. I don't need this meal. But secondly, the Lord's Supper is also a place of discipline. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Paul says this in the context of discipline. Right There is a member of the Corinthian church who has married his father's wife. And he's reveling in the freedom, the newfound freedom that he has in Christ. And he thinks, this is great. I can do this. I'm free in Christ. And Paul says, purge out the old leaven. Purge out the old leaven. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. How can you continue on in sin? You can't. You can't. This meal is a constant reminder. You see, the leaven was banned from the household during Passover. Not because leaven is intrinsically evil, right? We've, we've all had the sourdough. It's excellent, right? That, that's not the point. The point is leaven infects. It spreads. And that is a picture of two things, sin and righteousness. Right? The gospel is like leaven that works its way into the dough and spreads out into every corner of the world. But so is sin. And we've talked about this before. Sin corrupts and it continues to spread and grows. We are to throw out the old leaven. The leaven of malice and evil. See, leaven, it signifies that contagion that spreads And Paul is using this image of purging out the leaven for the discipline the church must engage in when it comes to the supper. We should be examining our hearts. What kind of leaven is spreading in my life? Is it the gospel leaven of sincerity and truth? Or is it the leaven of malice and evil? What is growing within me? Now, that's not to say that you should cut yourself off from the table. That is a form of discipline. When you say, I'm not going to take it, you are excommunicating yourself from communication, from communion with Christ. That is one of the keys of the kingdom that Christ has given to his apostles, to his uh, men who are called to lead in the church, your elders. The keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. And so we have three that we use as elders. One, the first is admonish. We would admonish you. If you have open sin in your life, we would come to you and we would say, brother or sister, you can't live this way and be consistent with the confession that you have made that you are bound to Christ and a slave to righteousness. You need to kill this sin. And if that person repents and says, yes, I know, I'm I'm so sorry. God, please forgive me. And they endeavor to walk in faithfulness, then that's it. But if they refuse and they continue and they say, I don't think this is sin. 
I'm going to keep my father's wife. I have this freedom in Christ. And the, the elders would come and say, then you may not come and participate in this one bread and this one cup that signifies the unity because your life is not in, is not in congruence with who God has called you to be. And therefore, until you repent, you may not come to the Lord's Supper. It is a form of discipline. That's why we don't ask you to do that to yourselves. You should not be disciplining yourself. If you have a tender conscience and you feel like I am sinful and I'm unworthy, then great, that, this meal is for you. It's not for people who are already perfect. There are none. It's for sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The Lord's Supper is also a form of discipline. Well, how often should the church discipline itself to come to the table in sincerity and truth? Once a year? Once a month? When you feel like it? No, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are expressing your desire to be in conformity to Christ. You are disciplining yourself. You are coming under the discipline of the Lord as you turn from sin and repentance towards Christ. The New Testament church used the Lord's Supper as sustenance for their sojourn in the wilderness, their daily manna, but also as a discipline, purging out the old leaven of malice and evil. Now we just we need to a- answer the question. The pr- how, how, uh, what was the practice of the New Testament church? How did they do this? We have this expression in the Acts of the Apostles, breaking bread. And we read that in our text from 20, verse 7. What does that mean? Some, sometimes it, it really just is a meal. If you looked at Acts 27.33, Paul is in the midst of uh, about to be a shipwreck. And he says this, As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. And there, the ESV translated it as take some food, but it is breaking bread. He encourages them to break bread. Now that expression is nothing more than just having a meal together. It's a mixed multitude. It's not the body of Christ. But other times, the expression clearly refers to the Lord's Supper. We see in Luke 24, 30. Right before this, the disciples are walking with Jesus on the Emmaus Road. He has been resurrected and they don't recognize him. And they think, How, are you new? Don't you know what's been happening? We, the Messiah, we, you know, they're just puzzled that he can't, that they, he doesn't know what's going on. And, and he begins to open up the scriptures to them and explain all that the Messiah would suffer. And then, he, you know, he pretends to go a little bit further, but they press him and they say, come and eat with us. And it says this in verse 30 of 24, when he was at table with them, He took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they began to see that it was Jesus. It was in the breaking of the bread. It was in the breaking of the bread that Jesus revealed himself to them. That the eyes of faith were opened and they saw. In verse 35 it says, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them 
in the breaking of the bread. You see, Jesus was known to these disciples in the breaking of the bread, which is much more than just celebrating a meal, which is just having a good meal together. It's the Lord's Supper. And also, Jesus said earlier in in the institution, in Luke 22, verse 18, he says, For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, what's he doing? What's he doing after his resurrection when he eats and drinks with them? He is proclaiming the kingdom has come. It is in your midst. He is eating the meal together with them because he has accomplished his purposes. The kingdom of God has come. But also we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a description of life. It's, it's a snapshot of what's happening at the beginning of the church to the people of God. And it says this in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is daily. They devoted themselves means they continually did it. It's active. The NASB says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, which we already talked about, koinonia. That's the unity that we have as the body of Christ. The breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and prayer. These four things characterize their gathering every time they came together. Every time they came together as the people of God, they heard the word read. That is, they discussed the apostles' teaching. That's what we have, right? We have the completed canon. We have all of the, new, the apostles' teaching. And we devote ourselves to them. The fellowship, the communion of saints gathering together, the breaking of bread and prayer. When they daily came together, they did this. Paul calls the Lord's Supper a fellowship in Christ's death. We already read that. Remember, it's a participation. So even if you thought breaking of the bread was just a meal, he says fellowship. Fellowship and breaking of the bread. Both of those together cannot but mean that they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Again, what we read from Acts chapter 7 on the first day, or 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. So the practice of the church was that as often as they met together, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And it makes sense that when the Lord's people gather on the Lord's day to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord on the first day of the week, that their gathering should culminate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So how often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Not once a year, not once a month, not when you feel like it, not when it's special. And I want to end with a quote from Calvin, as I think it, it sums up nicely our own conclusions this morning. He said, What we have so far said of the sacrament abundantly shows that it was not ordained to be received only once a year, and that too perfunctorily, as now is the usual custom, Rather, it was ordained to be frequently used among all Christians in order that they might frequently return in memory to Christ's passion 
and by such remembrance to sustain and strengthen their faith and urge themselves to sing, sing thanksgiving to God and to proclaim His goodness. Finally, by it to nourish mutual love among themselves, give witness to this love and discern its bond in the unity of Christ's body. For as often as we partake of the symbol of the Lord's body as a token given and received, we reciprocally bind ourselves to all the duties of love in order that none of us may permit anything that can harm our brother or overlook anything that can help him where necessity demands and ability suffices. There he sums up all that we've seen. This is a remembrance of Christ's death. And we should remember it often. And it's a celebration of our being a part of the new covenant. And it expresses the unity that we have with one another in Christ. It's our daily manna that sustains us. And it shows forth the discipline that we all ought to embody as we learn to love one another. And so, how often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? as often as we gather together. And this is the conclusion that your elders have come to. And that's why from now on, beginning with this morning, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. It will be the culmination of our worship. As we, are, as we hear the Word of God, we will also see visibly the Word of God, a sign and a seal of the grace and the righteousness that is yours by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so we come.